when you're when you're in a level five prison, uh, the the police and they're the officers really treat you like you're less than a human being. So, so it's um, it's 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 not a it's not a nice thing. Because all they see are people in cage who did something bad, who are constant threats, and that's that's not a reform mindset that you can work with. My name is Lauren Williams, and you are listening to the We the People podcast. Cornell University did a study, and they found that nearly 45% of Americans know a close relative or loved one that's been incarcerated. Finding this out left a blaring question in my mind. How did America become the country with the largest incarceration rate in the world? And what is the impact? When I first began researching this topic, I found it to be incredibly intricate. There were so many moving parts that I didn't quite understand. So I reached out to Professor Cabriel. She's the chair member of the Brandeis Legal Studies Program and a co-founder of the Brandeis Educational Justice Initiative. Could you tell me a bit about the context of mass incarceration, how we got to this point? It's a long history of how we got here, because the policies that were created by the government around the war on drugs really had a had an accelerating impact on incarceration and the prison state that we have today. She begins to explain to me that on June 17, 1971, President Richard Nixon is giving a press conference. And right there, behind the podium, he says, America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. And just like that, the war on drugs was on. And life after that moment was and is Forever changed. If you look at the laws that were created around sentencing, the classification of drugs, policing, things of that nature, all of those sort of accelerated from the 70s um, to today. And you see this incredible rise, especially in the early 90s, of, um, of people moving into prison. And, and because of the way the laws were structured, the majority of those people were like an entire generation of black young adults. The war on drugs isn't ancient history. It is America's longest war. And it is still raging on today. Spent over $2 trillion on the war on drugs. You stated, I believe in the past, Ms. Gupta, that states should decriminalize the simple possession of all drugs, particularly marijuana, and for small amounts of other drugs. Both a public health problem and an enforcement problem, and that uh, it is important to treat those things as such, uh, but I don't support decriminalization of drugs. The more I learned about the origin story of mass incarceration and the issues that plague our country today, I started to long for an insider's perspective. Someone who had been in prison that could tell me 
what that was like, how that felt. So I called a family friend. His name's Ethan. He's in his 20s and he's from Detroit. He was actually let out of prison yesterday. One, I'm going to tell you this right now. That prison, it's it, 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 a lot of foul stuff that go on in there. And and it's not, you know, it's not, I told your mother, I, I will give you a little bit of details, but I ain't going to be sitting there answering every single question. It's not a situation I like to talk about, but the cop, the police that's in there, they are not, they are not, they are not your friends and they will set you up. The sentiment that there is injustice and inequities between those who are incarcerated and correctional officers wasn't just echoed by Ethan. Department of Corrections Union, they're just butting up constantly against any reforms um, to try to make a prison a better looking place. They lobbied against uh, solitary confinement reform so vigorously. The only reform that was trying to be made was, was that we provide some restrictions on stuff. Like before 2018, there was no limit to how long a correctional officer could put somebody in solitary confinement in Massachusetts. So this, this it, it was like um, the facility I was at, level five, is it's all ways like it's a level, it's the maximum, it's a maximum security prison. It's always fighting, it's always something going on, and and. I just dealt with situations how it would just come at me because level five is the worst type of prison you can be at in MDLC. When you're in prison, you have your own little circle of people you hang out with and you deal with every day. And that's to, that's to every individual in there. Whether it's level five or wherever you're at in prison, you have your own uh, little group of people you hang out with, and that's what I did. It was eye-opening to hear Ethan's story about his time during incarceration. I started to wonder, what does he want to do now? That he's re-entering back into society, back into the life he once knew. The good, the, the, the good people I met in prison, you know, I, I, I was hurt to leave them. But at the same time, I know I had to go out here and I had I had business goals I wanted to deal with. So I was very anxious to do do my business goals and uh, do the stuff I, I need to do to make myself succeed. Ethan luckily has support from his family, and he's been able to have great success with his reentry program. But I wondered if that was the case for every formerly incarcerated person. So after, after a period of incarceration as an adult, finding a job, finding a place to stay, finding something to eat. <laughs> That's three basic, yeah. basic needs. Um, housing is uh, very hard. Finding secure and stable housing is really, really challenging because the laws are still stacked against people who have particularly drug crimes no access to public housing, you know, for, for felony drug crimes. 
um, no access to other benefits if you have felony drug crimes. So, so there's policy reform that could be changed to make housing as a basic need more accessible to people who are coming out of prison. Um, and if you don't have housing, then you are you are um, very vulnerable to violence and reincarceration for probation violations, for example. The sentence never ends. Question of where and how you're serving it. And that's the case for so many individuals. One thing I became increasingly curious about was voting. Because if you've been through an experience like this, where you were denied your basic human rights, you would want to vote to make everything better, to make the people that have come after and before you for their lives to be better. And that's where felon voter disenfranchisement comes into play. I had the pleasure to talk to John Shattuck, who is a former United States Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy and now serves as a professor at Tufts University. I asked him a few questions about voter disenfranchisement for felons. There are 11 states, and, and this is all done at the state level, by the way. There's no federal law on uh, voting disenfranchisement. 11 states permanently bar people from voting who have been prison, in prison, unless they're pardoned by the governor. That's 11 states, mostly southern states, mostly former states with slavery. It's, it's really turned into this political battleground, which is really, I think, endangering democracy in so many different ways. So the very aggressive efforts that are being made by the Republican Party to um, restrict or repress, suppress voting. Voting is, is the one way in which every citizen has, at least in theory, a, a say over the way the country is run. This, this is why it's been difficult to amend and change the voting laws uh, to overturn some of the restrictions that have been enacted. And there's an effort in the Congress right now to do that. But that legislation is stuck because Republicans and a couple of Democrats are unwilling to go forward uh, with the legislation. We should think about it in terms of rights. I mean, we have rights in this country. Uh, most people aren't able to exercise them, and in some cases, they're denied their rights. And when you when you come out of prison, you've served your time, you've given your time to society. If you did something wrong, why should you continue to be punished for that and give up your right, your most basic right in this case, the right to vote? Through having these conversations, it is clear that mass incarceration impacts all of us. From those who are serving time, those who are formerly incarcerated, or even someone who has a loved one in the prison system. We all have to bear the emotional and mental trauma. But I would argue that it doesn't have to be this way. We could have change. We could have justice, but what would it take? I think that the general public needs to needs to be educated 
to see people who are incarcerated as not some as not other people. They need to see it more as we the people, and they're part of that. Like they they the general public needs to um, be reoriented towards thinking about people who are in the carceral system as members of our community. And if the general public can do that, then the people who are incarcerated can feel that they are coming back to a community. Because that's the problem, is that the people when they, people who are incarcerated when they are released, the community doesn't embrace them. It's a constant state of othering that happens uh, by virtue of policies and also by virtue of the cultural mindset of seeing, you know, oh, those, those are bad people, or those people committed crimes, or those are people who are in a situation that I would never be in, right? But that's not really true. Professor Gabriel is right. And honestly, I think I'm starting to understand the bigger picture. We have had systems in place for years, decades, centuries, that have targeted minorities, that have uprooted families and lives. And it's important not to distance ourselves from that. It's important to look injustice straight in the eye and confront it head on. I think the moment we start to realize our own implicit biases, that's when we can truly fight for restorative justice and reform. Because we are closer to experiencing the repercussions that come with being incarcerated than we are to basking in the luxury of freedom. And that should terrify us. That should scare us. Because everyone deserves to have a life filled with dignity, happiness, respect, humanity, and a sense of community. Thank you for listening. This has been the We the People podcast. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with advocating for those who are incarcerated, I would recommend donating or volunteering for the voice of the experienced. This organization is a grassroots organization founded and run by formerly incarcerated people their families, and their allies. They're dedicated to restoring the full human and civil rights experience for those who are most impacted by the criminal justice system.